Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal mehr. Welcome to the first full episode of Spaßbremse. I'm Michelle. Hey, this is Ted, coming to you from Berlin. Michelle, where are you these days? I am in the United States of America, currently. <laughs> so you got you got sick of this diseased political culture here in Germany and decided to get the real heavy doses over there? Yeah, the real brain poison. <laughs> All right, well, we are, uh, we are talking about Germany, as, as you might know from the theme of our podcast. And we are excited to bring you, as Michelle said, our first full episode. What are we talking about? We are discussing Hartz IV today. That's the shorthand for unemployment benefits. We'll talk a bit more about terminology later. But why is this important, Ted? Well, in my opinion, and the opinion of really, I think you could say, most, most educated analysts about Germany, is that Hartz IV, the creation of, of this welfare and unemployment reform, is really the most important political event in Germany post-unification. Um, and I, I really mean that not as an exaggeration at all. You know, not not the Euro, not Merkel, um, any other stuff. I really think this is the moment that defines German political culture and society in a lot of ways. And the weird thing is that it's not discussed very much outside of Germany, but it's really unavoidable within it. Like I said, you know, it, it reformed unemployment and welfare. I think most people know that reform usually means cut. And what it did, it really flies in the face of this narrative of the generous welfare state that Germany is often described as having in a lot of the foreign press. And it affected a huge swath of society, uh, both the people directly affected and the families who know someone who's um, had their quality of life decrease because of these policies, especially in the bottom distribution of income. And so in terms of what this actually was, Hatzfia uh, was the fourth in a series of welfare and labor reforms as part of Agenda 2010, enacted around the, the new millennium, by the joint Social Democratic and Green government between 2003 and 2005. And the stated goal was liberalizing and, quote, modernizing the labor market and reducing unemployment, which was pretty high in Germany at the time. It's named after then uh, Volkswagen, uh, human resources director Peter Hatz. And so just the fact that he helped design these programs might give you a little idea of who the reforms were designed to benefit. But, you know, really, why are we talking about this? It might seem a little obscure or niche on our first episode to get into welfare reform. You know, we have a new podcast trying to get a bigger audience. Why would we talk about something that might seem kind of boring? But like I said, this, this really isn't, and it's the key to understanding modern German politics, especially as the federal election to get the first post-Merkel chancellor in 16 years comes up in September. And so what this did is it had the effect of creating a large low-wage sector in Germany, the largest in Europe, and increasing precarity for a lot of workers. Mostly, it really created the modern German political system and party landscape. 
But before we get into details about exactly how Hot Sphere worked, what it did, the effects, both politically and socially, we should briefly run through some of the main German political parties, I think. And we're going to do a briefing series on all of these, just little short ones to give you an idea of the history and what the parties stand for before the election. So if you'd like more context, don't worry. Uh, but just for a quick intro, Michelle, do you have some info for us? I do. This is according to recent polling from July 7th, and I'm going to go in order of largest vote share first. We have the union at 30%. The union is the CDU and its sister party, the CSU from Bavaria. This is the center-right party that's been in government, Merkel's party. Up next, polling at 19%, we have the Greens. This is a party born from the 60s um, environmental and countercultural anti-war movement, but they have moved dramatically towards the center. Um, and right, like I said, they're at 19%. Uh, next, we have the SPD, that is the center-left party, the oldest party in Germany. They are polling at 15%. The FDP is at 11% in next place. They are the economically liberal party, followed by the AFD, the Alternative für Deutschland. People may have heard of this far-right populist party. In recent years, they are polling at 10% currently for the upcoming elections in September. And last but not least, we have the Linke, the left party, the Democratic Socialist Party, polling at 7%. Yeah, that gives you an idea just who the, who the main players are in the political system. And those are all the parties likely to actually make it into parliament with the 5% threshold to actually get in there. But like I said, we're going to explain all these details um, either later in the episode or, or in future episodes. But when Gerhard Schröder of the SPD was elected in 2002, the German political landscape looked a lot different. Um, Schröder himself, I th you can think of him as basically a German analog to Blair in the UK or Clinton in the US in terms of representing the rightward movement of a traditionally center-left party. You know, as usual, Germany kind of lagging a bit behind the U.S. and U.K., but, but always trying to catch up there. So at this time, the SPD was the largest party, barely edging out the CDU, largely on the basis of opposition to the Iraq war, which was very unpopular in Germany at the time. And the CDU and SPD are both at about 39 percent, with SPD just a tiny bit bigger. And the Greens had 7% um, with the FDP and the PDS, which was the successor to the East German Communist Party and predecessor to half of what then formed Die Linke, the left party, um, at 4%, meaning that the left wing, there was no real left wing party in the Bundestag with the 5% threshold. So you're enacting this really right wing and neoliberal reforms, and there's no opposition to them. The only opposition really was encouraging them to go further from the FDP and the CDU. So it's really a bizarre political moment in Germany where you have this big rightward shift from traditionally left parties and no one further left to oppose it. A little more on the kind of economic context, like I said, there's pretty high unemployment in Germany, around 10%. This strained local resources as money was distributed uh, on the local level. There were some problems post-unification. You know, this is only about a decade after, after unification. And there was the destruction of a lot of industry and jobs in Eastern Germany, resulting in especially high unemployment there, 
Germany was described in some of the press as the, quote, sick man of Europe. There were the Maastricht criteria as the euro had just been introduced, along with strict rules on government debt and deficits. So that was on people's mind. And this is also on the tail of Blair and Clintonite reforms in the U.S. and U.K., as I mentioned. And what this did was really provided a political template for center-left parties to enact neoliberalizing reforms. And these are these all all these leaders really got together and discussed this kind of stuff. This sort of third way centrism was a really transnational project, actually. And this is this is Germany's move to do that. And the other thing about a center left and an environmental party enacting these neoliberal reforms is often described as a kind of only Nixon could go to China moment. Um, And people say this in the way about Nixon visiting China and establishing diplomatic relations. They say only a strident anti-communist could engage with communist China. And in that same way, only social Democrats could so successfully cut the social welfare state. Super tough to hear that. And so that's what the big picture political context looked like at this time. But Michelle, what were people talking about? Yeah, so in the early aughts, you have this kind of hyper focus on unemployment, especially long term unemployment. People who are just cashing in these benefits is something that was obsessed over in the talk shows in the media at the time. I think a perfect example of this is Florida Rolf. It's this guy, this German guy living in Florida, cashing his unemployment checks and being talked about in the German media as the epitome of laziness and government waste. So, Right. It reminds me a lot of this Reagan era thing in the U.S. with the welfare queens and this like one example probably dubiously reported and not entirely true, but like indicative of this, of these people, these lazy people living large on the welfare state. And then this one example is used as a reason to cut this entire system and send a lot of people into a much more precarious and uncertain situation because of this one anecdote. Exactly. It's all this guy's fault. So what we had for, or what Germany had for unemployment insurance before the reform is called Arbeitslosenhilfe, so unemployment assistance. And this was a system where if you don't have a job or you lost your job, you receive a certain portion of your prior wages. It kind of depends on how many dependents you have, but that doesn't expire, right? So you reapply every year, but you can kind of keep on going at the quality of life you were having when you did have a job. Right. So there's like no hard cutoff, right? Right. There's no hard cutoff and you can accept new job offers based on your current skill level or training level in education. Yeah. You weren't forced to just kind of accept anything that came along. You know, if you're a trained lawyer, you don't have to be a delivery driver or whatever. Exactly. And Hatsfia... What Hatsfia did is it it really changed all of that. Um, One, it combined the social assistance and unemployment into a single system. There's some arguments for doing that. Um, That's not one of the most controversial parts of it, Uh, just sort of a bit of bureaucratic streamlining. Some people say that was a good thing. It's a bit mixed. But the issue was when you did this, a lot of people actually lost benefits in the bureaucratic transition. And some estimates go up to as much as 10% of people lost their support for unemployment assistance. 
And in terms of the fur, the money you actually received for the first 12 months, the benefits are pretty similar around 60% of previous income, like Michelle said, depending on your amount of dependence. And this always came with a limit. Uh, this year, it's 7,100 a month in Western Germany and 67 in the former GDR. Still a bit strange that they have different amounts you can get in the former GDR, even though those are decent amounts of money, but it's still weird that there's a different level, especially because this disproportionately impacted the East where there was a lot higher unemployment due to the fairly inequitable way that German unification occurred economically. But really the most important part of it and the part you'll hear the most about is what it did after those first 12 months of the reasonably well-paid unemployment benefits. And this is 18 months if you're a bit older. But the vast majority of recipients had their benefits reduced. And there's maximum increases of this very small amount every year. This year, 2021, it's 439 euros per month. You get your rent covered if you live in a small apartment. They'll tell you your apartment is too big if you live in a nicer apartment until you need to move. Or your car your might be too nice. You might have yeah, to. Yeah, your car might be too nice. Yeah, they, they look at all your finances, decide what's too decadent for you, and then give you this 439 if you don't have any extra resources. Germany's not a cheap country to live in. 439 euros does not go very far. And the idea that people are supposed to get by on that, which can also be reduced for various circumstances, is really ridiculous and very punitive. And this is what's called now Arbeitslosengeld 2, or um, unemployment payment 2, meaning the thing that comes after the initial 12 months. And you'll commonly hear this term in German politics. So if you hear ALG2, that's basically Hatzfia. That's what people are talking about. Exactly. And maybe, Ted, you can explain for us why these reforms led to an expansion in the low-wage sector. Right. Yeah, definitely. So so like you were getting to, you know, you used to be able to choose from similar jobs at your level. If you train at a high level, you don't have to accept the first job that comes along. You can take something that's in line with your qualifications and your skills, which I think is fair. And what this did is it changed that. Um, you're forced to take jobs outside of your professional range and your skill level, or you risk losing benefits. You also have a big rise in these temp agencies where you don't actually work for the company that you're doing tasks for. You work for a temp agency who then contracts you out to a larger company. And so you get this smaller and smaller protected class of people on long-term contracts. It didn't actually touch the long-term contracts very much, but it made them harder to come by as it increased the sort of short-term work. And there's a really punitive system of being forced to use your own resources, and those of your family in some cases, before receiving state aid. So they might come after your close kin and say, oh, they're too rich, they should support you before the state does. And I think this is a it's a really interesting example of how state power is used to reinforce these very traditional um, family bonds. Melinda Cooper talks about this in, in her book um, in the context of the U.S. And I think this is a great German example of saying, no, the state's not watching out for you. Your first job is to rely on the family. And that's hugely problematic if you don't have good relations with your family, if um, for whatever reason, you know, um, and that really forces people into a very bad position, in addition to pooling the risk, not to the state, not to society, but to your close family members. 
Right. So in the old system, they considered each person as an individual. And in this new system, you're kind of in this community of need with the people you are living with or the people who are related to you. And kind of a funny thing, they look at your wealth or savings rather that get calculated into your benefits and how much money you can have saved up that the government then like doesn't touch or cut your benefits is 150 euros per year of life. So a 40 year old can only have 6,000 euros in the bank that don't get calculated into your unemployment assistance. And this is also Germany where people famously love to save money. So you're really like, you stand to get quite a bit taken out of the bank if you get unemployed and then they tell you to spend that all down before you get state money. Right, like they'll just reject your application until you've spent your savings and then they'll put you on the assistance program. So instead of really in it, you know, it it really disputes and and distorts the idea of the fact that the the state is there for you and to protect you. It's, It's to sort of keep you from dying barely, but to humiliate you along the way. Like I said, you know, coming after your family for money, telling you your car or your apartment is too nice, and only then giving you just a pittance to get by. And I, we can get into this later, but I really see this as one of the main objectives of this kind of reform is not just the alleged cost savings of cutting this stuff. It's really to make you feel unworthy and to make you feel inferior and to make you feel humiliated for taking this money because they don't want you to do it and they want you to feel bad for needing any money from the government. So you'll take the shittiest job you can find and that increases the power of employers in the market and it reduces your power. And that's really the whole point of this is reinforcing and establishing these very, very clear hierarchies between capital and labor in Germany. Right. And I think that's exemplified in these harsh sanctions that you receive. So the job center is like sending you appointments that you have to show up to. And if you miss one appointment, your assistance money could get cut. And this actually even applies to children. If you are 15 and no longer in school, you have to start showing up at the job center and your entire family's Unemployment benefits could get cut if a child fails to find a job, right? So it's kind of these built-in mechanisms to punish children, punish families, and keep them financially insecure. For example, children of Hearts FIA recipients who are in a work training program aren't allowed to earn more than 100 euros a month. I just find that restriction extremely cruel, right? Like, what's 100 euros? It's ridiculous. That's a joke, yeah. I guess along those lines, we can talk a bit about child poverty in general. When the reforms first go into effect in 2003, that's like 18 years ago, it's been a generation of kids growing up in this system, right? And the numbers currently show, this is actually pre- Corona, so it's probably gotten even worse than this, but 2.8 million kids in Germany grow up in poverty, either at the poverty line or below. Almost 2 million of those are receiving these Hatsvia benefits. 
And that's more than one in five kids, right? So child poverty has only increased since the 90s, a stronger increase in Germany than other industrialized nations. And yet you hear that these reforms were a success, right? Because they're measured by did unemployment go down? Like, are more people working? The number on the graph says, yeah, we did it. We we put more people to work. Right. It doesn't tell you what are those jobs. Right. It doesn't ask you what are they doing or are people going broke? It's just the headline figure looks good. And they say, oh, Germany is the strongest economy in Europe. It's, you know, it weathered the euro crisis so well. And, you know, Ger- Germany is rightly blamed for inflicting a lot of misery on other European countries throughout the euro crisis you know, about six, seven years ago. Um, but, it, you know, and that's true. But the amount of misery and poverty in this country that's inflicted by the, some of the same economic actors it's also remarkable. So it's not like every German is living large. There's a there's a lot of deprivation and a lot of misery within this country. Yeah, just a ton of insecurity and stress. I think Inger Solti of the uh, Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung says you're always just 12 months of unemployment away from total exclusion from social life and loss of personal zo- sovereignty and just 12 months away from dependence on charity, and you can kind of picture how this is in the back of people's minds, not wanting to lose their jobs, not wanting to fall into this system that is really hard to climb out of. Yeah, and this is, you know, Germans are kind of famously risk-averse too, right? You know, this the system might not even sound that evil by American standards. In, in a lot of ways, it, it, it's comparable to, to what happens in some states. But, you know, this is there's a different culture here, a different history of welfare, and people are used to something else, and this is such a big change. And really, yeah, terrifying to know that no matter how high you rise in society, you can always fall right back down to the bottom. And so I also want to talk about a bit of the larger scale kind of macroeconomics effects of this. As we mentioned earlier, there's a huge growth in the low wage sector as flexible and contract work were deregulated. It also allowed for the creation of mini jobs to be taken while Hatsfia benefits are received, uh, which are like 450 euros a month. And so what this does is effectively grants a subsidy to the most exploitative employers as they're able to hire workers on terms that no one would accept without the money. That is, you offer conditions that are so poor on their own that no one would take the job, but you know that people get the extra little benefit of Hatsfia, so they'll take it. So you end up just like I said, subsidizing these extremely exploitative and manipulative employers. And so that's another huge effect of what this does. You see a big rise in inequality. And, and I'm quoting two economists here writing for the OECD, so not, not exactly left-wing firebrands. Quote, Germany is the only country that has seen an increase in labor earnings inequality from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, driven by increasing inequality at the bottom half of the distribution. That's the key there, the bottom half of the distribution. And the causes they cite, weakening unions and the 2003 HOTS reforms. You also get, over this period, real wage stagnation, even as productivity grows. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is a big story in a lot of countries, and HOTS is one of the main reasons that this happened here. It, I should point out that the collective bargaining system and long, long-term long contract protections really weren't changed that much. And this is something that defenders of Hatsfia say quite a bit. 
But the issue is that by making unemployment riskier, increasing the downside of that, the bargaining power of labor is diminished because there's less to fall back on. You know, worker power isn't just the product of your union strength or skills. It's also the product of what the worst case possible scenario is. And when that worst case is total misery, you're not willing to demand very much from your boss. And so the most important part of this and the part that really disputes what defenders of Hatzfiya say is it actually wasn't the cause of the reduction in unemployment, although it did coincide with the shift. Now unemployment in Germany is quite a bit lower. But this was the result of some earlier reforms that were just um, some more structural reorganization and not directly cutting benefits and external economic events. And so two economists from the University of Mainz find that, quote, the reform can explain only 0.1 percentage point of the post-Hatz decline of the unemployment rate. So pretty, pretty remarkable non-effect there um, on the good side in terms of reducing unemployment and huge effects on the bad side in terms of making people worse off and taking away their money. Right. And I think when we talk about the legacy of Hatzfiya and the effects, we definitely have to look at the political side of things. And before Ted gets into that a little bit, I do want to mention that as these reforms were being discussed in Parliament, there was a huge mobilization across a wide range of groups in society that mobilized like against these reforms. A lautstarke bundesweite Demonstration gegen Hartz IV. Unter dem Motto Weg mit Hartz IV haben am Nachmittag rund 2000 Menschen für die Abschaffung des Arbeitslosengeldes II demonstriert. You had the unions out in the street, church organizations, up to, I think, estimates were 200,000 people in 200 towns across Germany. The richest people in the society are getting richer. Our society, the wealth in the society is getting bigger and bigger. The question is how it is distributed. And it is a problem of distribution. Um, the, the production is every year going up. The productivity is going, going up. And the big companies every year making more and more profit. But this profit is not coming down to the people. Even, even like the tabloids were joining in the campaign against these reforms. But the lack of a strong left opposition in parliament meant that even this huge outcry was kind of a dead end. Yeah, this would be like, I don't know, imagine like the Daily Mail in England or like Fox News in the U.S. Uh, coming out against cuts. I mean, this is like a huge political coalition of, but like you said, extra parliamentary. And so, yeah, it went through anyway. And in terms of what this did to create the modern German political landscape, which is sort of how we how we described this and how we sold this, um, the effects, I'll run through a bit how it created a lot of the modern, uh, both the modern political parties and affected the pre-existing parties. So first of all, it created the party Die Linke, which now polls around 10%. Um, this happened when disgruntled former SPD members left to join the WASG, that's translates, the acronym translates to Elector Electoral Alternative for Social Justice Party later joined by the finance minister under Schroeder, Oscar Lafontaine. This party, the WASG, merged with the PDS, which is the successor to the East German Communist Party, the SED. This merger of the two formed the modern party of Die Linke. So like I said, they get about 10% of the vote. Um, it's pretty, you know, pretty sizable party, and they're in government 
um, in the actual leadership in several states, primarily in the East still, but not exclusively. It's also really indicative of the rightward shift of the SPD. This was pretty typical of European social democracy at the time. And just as they move to the right, you also see their vote share plummet. Now, social democratic vote share across Europe is is much, much lower, about a th- half to a third of what it used to be, depending on the country. And this is part, this was called in Germany, the Neue Mitte, the new center. And like I said, though that's probably comparable to, to new labor um, in the UK or the Clintonism and the Democratic Leadership Council in the US. So in the longer term, looking at the current political landscape, you have a decline in class-based voting as working class voters abandon the SPD. This makes the CDU the dominant party and open up space for the right-wing AFD. This has been called by some observers um, the AFD as the sort of belated gift of the hot sphere reforms. There's also what I would call the the Groco mindset. This is this is my own term. I'm just making up here, but what I mean by this, uh, Groco is short for Grosso Coalition, uh, the Grand Coalition, which means the current governing coalition of the SPD and the CDU, traditionally the two largest parties. And so these parties used to be largely in conflict in post-war West Germany, you know, one representing the working class, the SPD, the other representing, you know, business owners and generally the well-to-do and the capitalist class, the CDU. Only once in post-war West Germany did you have a coalition between these two in the late 60s. Since the Hatzfeld reforms, you've had almost uninterrupted GroKo. And that's the, the current government you have today. And why I think this is important is that instead of supporting these different classes that they traditionally have, there's this new view of governing as problems to be solved rather than interest groups to be supported. And if the working classes don't have a political voice, the system inevitably leans towards serving the upper classes at the expense of everyone else. Now you have Germany with an inequality level that's actually much closer to the super high U.S. levels than European neighbors like France or Denmark have. Um, And again, I think this goes against the narrative that you hear about Germany, both within the country, actually, and and outside of it, that Germany has the soziale Marktwirtschaft, the social market economy, that it's a sort of kinder, gentler capitalism and that inequality isn't so bad, but it's... It's massive here and it's only going up. And we really have both the political mindset and reality that's come from the reforms and the economic reality of the reforms to thank for that. Faced with this increasing inequality and also the increasing levels of child poverty that we talked about a bit earlier, you may be wondering what the parties are proposing. In order to look at that, I I took a took a look at these party platforms for the elections coming up, what the main parties are proposing in regards to unemployment, in regards to Hatsfia, what they want to change. So some of this may seem like I'm making it up and may sound like a joke, but it's real. It's in their party platforms. The union, they... Basic union meaning CDU, CSU, right. not a labor union. Right, sorry. <laughs> the CDU and CSU um, basically blah, 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 get more people to work. They had paragraphs and paragraphs, and that was 
the only thing they were saying. They also want to throw 100 euros to Hatzfia families with children as a one-time payment. So that's great. Thanks. Thanks, CDU. The Greens, in, I mean, you have to give them a little credit. They think the current system should be replaced with a basic income system, which sounds great. And then you look at the details and it's actually just step by step wanting to up the sustenance level by at least 50 euros. So that's also great. Talking a big game and then saying we'll throw them 50 bucks. The SPD wants to rename the agency, the work agency. They want to call it um, agency plus Q, which is for qualification. And basically then they proceed to throw around the word solidarity just to end up renaming an agency, right? They always full of full of new ideas. They love clinging to their working class history yeah. as a sort of source of credibility, even as they've just comprehensively sold out uh, the working class in Germany. Really tough. The FDP wants less bureaucracy and says that the amount of savings that Hatzfia recipients have should be increased. So if you have a nice car, you get to keep that car under an FDP government. If you like your car, you can keep it. <laughs> Just nibbling around the edges with little catchy proposals, as always. The left party, Linka, wants to do an ALG plus. So instead of ALG2, now we have a plus system. They basically want to get rid of Hatzfia and go back to a variation of the previous unemployment insurance. They also want to increase the child allowance that families receive. And I do guess I have to mention the AFD. I searched their 100-page document for anything regarding Hatzfia reforms and landed on a section heading Islam, where they propose to get rid of all department chairs of Islamic studies and also stop religious marriages for second and third wives for Muslims because they're receiving too many Hatzfia benefits. Like, it's just a joke of a party and a disgusting... That's insanely racist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, enough about that. That's what the parties are proposing for the upcoming election. Right. And given those polling numbers that Michelle outlined for us, if you match those up with who's actually saying anything remotely decent about Hatzfia, it's not looking great. So that's uh, that's pretty bleak. Not looking great. And we kind of want to move on to this like larger. We talked about the economics. We talked about the politics. But what's the real point of this? Like, how is it designed to change society how do they really want to change Germany and the kind of character of Germany, really? And so there's this Thatcher quote um, from our favorite Margaret Thatcher, former UK prime minister, rest in peace, <laughs> from 1981, that I think really sums up this idea. And I quote, it isn't that I set out on economic policies. It's that I set out to really change the approach. And changing the economics is the means of changing that approach. If you change the approach, you are really after the heart and soul of the nation. Economics are the method. The object is to change the heart and soul. And so that is a very grim view of human nature, but it's one that I think Hatzfia is really in line with. It's that workers are necessarily lazy. They're trying to mooch off of the system and we need to discipline them. We need to make people always feel precarious, always feel afraid, always feel the need to work. And meanwhile, we always trust the employers that they want to do the best for people. 
So there's this horrible skepticism towards the people actually doing the work and total benevolence to the people just with the money. Right. And we see this attitude actually reflected in the German government at the time, too. One of the architects of the Hartzfeer reforms, um, Franz Müntefering, <laughs> he was the chairman of the SPD at the time. And he was looking back on the legacy of Hartzfeer in an interview and almost in passing mentions oh, we succeeded in putting one million people to work. That was great. But the children of these people know, and this is the most important thing. This is what he's emphasizing. And I translate, quote, you can't wait for money or to receive assistance without making an effort. You have to do something. Message to the kids out there. <laughs> do something. Yeah, yeah. Make those, make those kids work. Get them, get them going. <sighs> and yeah, that's that's... That's this idea of just there's this whole generation now, like you said, 18 years that have grown up in this system, both, unfortunately, the people that grew up with just the money of it. But even if you didn't and had parents that earned a decent amount of money, you're still having to be constantly afraid of falling into this trap. And and I do really mean a trap. You know, like I said, about a quarter of German workers are in low wage work, meaning less than two thirds of the median wage, largest sector in Europe. And a quote that I think is really important about this trend, um, again, from an economist from the German Institute for Economic Research, the DIW here in Berlin. And I quote, the idea that working for low wages would be a transition and even a springboard into better jobs has proven to be an illusion for most. The low wage sector is a trap. And you also see that in the intergenerational mobility statistics for Germany. Uh, on average, it takes about six years to escape from being in the lowest quintile, I believe it is. Um, that's about two in Denmark. Generations. So it takes that many generations. Ge yeah, generations. Yeah. Six generations. So, you know, good luck with ever achieving that. I'd love to see one of those like TikTok hustle grind videos where they're like, yo, work up, like wake up early, work hard, you know, do your mini job. And then maybe you're great, 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 great grandchild cannot be in poverty <laughs> like it's just so bleak do your second mini job do your third mini, like, what? yeah oh. and also what you see now is virtually a one-party state at the federal level the cdu seems like they're going to hold the chancellery forever for a while it looked like the greens might creep up a tiny bit uh they're now dropping below 20 percent, like michelle outlined so it's it's not really looking great what you might wonder is like we talked about these huge protests and, you know, there's been a lot of opposition for a really long time. So why didn't they really have an impact or why hasn't this gotten repealed in the, you know, now almost 20 years since this happened? I think it's a lot to do with the timing of the reforms. You had the global financial crisis shortly after these reforms. And that was something that Germany weathered quite a bit better than other countries. And so there was this idea that that contributed to it, that other countries actually needed to enact similar reforms to be as successful as Germany. And a lot of this comes more from Germany's export model and using a lot of low wage labor from Eastern Europe as part of creating competitive exports and an undervalued euro as well. And that makes German exports very competitive on the world market. And that's one of the reasons they were able to keep producing so much and, and maintain a relatively good economy during the global financial crisis. So it's not 
due to these reforms. They just happen to kind of coincide. And that gives this sort of retroactive justification to them. And um, like I said, economists agree it didn't play a big role in reducing unemployment and it created a lot of economic misery. But I think the political discourse is still pretty skewed to to supporting them. And, you know, you see a little bit of opposition in those party platforms, but the prospects for ever changing this are pretty low. I mean, I think we've kind of covered the economic side of things. And before we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to share a concrete example of this media representation that we touched on a little bit. I used to be pretty preoccupied with these German reality TV shows on RTL. Maybe some of you have seen these. They depict recipients of social benefits, but it's always very clear who's deserving and undeserving. These shows, they've kind of bloomed into a whole universe. There's like 10 different shows. I thought there was only two, and I'm going and looking at the website. They... It's just an entire series of programming that's kind of gawking at poverty. You have the show Hatz Rot Gold, like Schwarz Rot Gold, the colors of the German flag, which is basically a poverty tour of different regions in Germany. Hartz Rot Gold fragt, wie leben die Armen im ärmsten Bundesland Deutschlands? You have Hatz und Herzlich, which is like, oh, you're receiving Hatz IV, but you're a sincere and likable person and so they kind of go interviewing um yeah just likable people as if to say there are people who as if to say that they're the exception exactly right? exactly than, yeah oh, that's great. mangelt es an geld nicht an herzlichkeit geld oder liebe würde ich mich für die liebe entscheiden weil liebe trifft man nur einmal im leben geld hat man immer das ist mein motto weil die auf geld gucken Hearts und herzlich, Tag für Tag. And then my personal favorite, and by that I mean the grimmest show I have ever seen on television. It's called Armes Deutschland, Stempeln oder Abrackern. So that's poor Germany. Armes Deutschland. Der Sozialstaat kostet fast eine Billion Euro im Jahr. Manche Bürger nutzen die Fürsorge schamlos aus, andere rackern sich ab und sind trotzdem arm. Lohnt sich Arbeit in Deutschland? It kind of presents the choice that you have in life to either stempen, to stamp, meaning collect welfare, or to abrackern, which is to work really hard. So you can either collect those benefits or you can work really hard. And they start each segment with the welfare recipient or the family, in whatever case, posing with the wad of cash in hand that they receive from the state every month. So you're already setting the viewer up to gawk at these people and just to be... Oh, fuck that. It's so bad. Like, I would encourage everybody to go look at this because it it's the perfect representation of what the entire... how the entire media represents these people. Philipp and seine Kumpels finanzieren mit staatlichen Leistungen ihren Drogenkonsum. Ja, ich finde, dass das Geld vor Ort nicht zusteht. Habt ihr denn schon mal was in die Kasse eingezahlt? Ich habe nie drüber nachgedacht, in irgendeiner Weise zum Amt zu gehen. And episodes tend to follow a certain format where they introduce a few families or individuals who receive Hatzfia benefits. And it's always easy to identify who the producers feel is worthy or unworthy. You know, they kind of had this catchphrase in um, Schroeder's government of what they plan to do with the reforms, fördern und fordern. 
So that's like to support and demand this carrot and stick approach. And you really see that reflected in these shows. Um, I'll just give kind of an example. In one episode, there's this couple where the wife fell sick and therefore can't work. And her husband is like taking care of her full time. They're kind of this trope of the deserving beneficiaries, like worthy of help from the taxpayer and complete with the sad piano music. We see the system working as it should, like the social safety net kind of catching those with a stroke of bad luck. And they're interviewing this woman. She's like, oh, I wish I could work. Like, I want to work so bad. And But for the other type of recipients that are portrayed in these shows, you kind of have this zooming in on piles of trash in their apartments, prying questions from the interviewer about like why this person refuses to work and this picking apart of like all the choices that they make, how they spend their time. They were interviewing this one guy who has been who like was trained as something but stopped working and hadn't worked in a couple years. And they're filming him just walking down the street. And they're like, oh, look, he's walking down the street at 11 a.m. when all the normal people are working. And you're like, what? Like, yes, he exists. He's out in the world. Um, But everything's filmed in this exaggerated, like, true crime way. And whenever something uncouth is said, they, like, pause and the exposure darkens in the camera, like, just stops for dramatic effect and like when the guy says oh I don't really feel like working and they're like boom boom like <laughs> look at this <laughs> yeah just to just to show that like the people who who don't have the money deserve it or this yeah like I said it's like this grim view of human nature that that I was saying and this is like is reflected in the actual media and are these on the are these shows on the public broadcaster or this they're not, okay. but this is like one of the most watched channels um, on German television. And I think just as a general effect, it really shifts the conversation away from, I don't know, improving working conditions. Like one of the one of the guys they profiled mentioned how he doesn't like jobs where you can only break at like predetermined times because he's a smoker and he wants to like smoke his cigarette and... I don't know, like maybe if you made having a job not suck so much, then he would work, but he just gets sanctioned. He's talking about how he gets sanctioned and they're just spending the entire time shaming him for receiving help from the state. And it feels like they just overturn every rock to find people they can depict as lazy. And it just sucks. It connects with all the things we've discussed, like just this judgment and, and, shame yeah and that's i mean i think it's one of the ways you can sustain like political support and if not support at least kind of inertia for these things when people i mean i've heard germans say this too before of like seeing someone who looks you know maybe not not super well dressed or like they maybe haven't maybe they're not super clean or whatever and then kind of describe people as like oh they look like hot types and like that's a pretty common thing for people to say, which is is pretty bleak, but it all ties into that. It's such idea. a stigma. Yeah, it's such a stigma of this. Like they're talked about in the news as the new underclass, as freeloaders. It's constant. Like, 
yeah, and it just just reinforces this idea that people people deserve to suffer if they're not going to work. And as we heard, if you choose to work in these low wage jobs, you never escape. It's like right. it, you're you're completely screwed. Whatever you do, you're just stuck. You're totally stuck. Absolutely. And so this this idea of equality or social mobility or anything like that just just really largely it. does not exist in this country. And like we said, it it really comes back to this. But we want to leave you on a little bit of a brighter note, or at least a funnier <laughs> note, or a slightly more just note. So we mentioned Peter Hatz, the HR director of Volkswagen, and he helped design these programs. Obviously, you need to discipline the workers. Uh, they're very lazy. You can't trust them. They want to take from the state. What was Peter up to? Well, he was convicted to two years in prison and fined a half million dollars for a series of behavior, including kickbacks to Volkswagen managers from fake companies doing real estate business, bribes to members of the Working Council, uh, which is illegal under German law, of course, that's sort of the workers' representation, and my favorite, the use of prostitutes at company dime, sometimes and often in company-owned apartments, and while using Viagra, uh, which had been prescribed by the company's medical doctors, firms in Germany often have their own doctors. So he's using company money to have parties with prostitutes with the rest of the management while being paid by the company. And this is the guy saying that you can't trust anyone else because they're going to mooch off the system. And what is he doing? A thousand times worse than any Florida Rolf. This and is the guy being like, you get two euros for cultural expenditures every month. <laughs> yeah, so his, his cultural expenditures were, were quite a bit more than that. So, of course, though, he was released early on parole, so it's not quite the justice we'd hope for, but at least there's a shred of it. I think that's all we have today. Do you have anything else, Michelle? I think that's it. Okay, great. Well, yeah, we know it's not the most fun topic or... The easiest to digest, but like we said, it's it's really foundational to German politics, and we're going to bring you a few more lighthearted episodes in the future, but we just want you to get a lot of these structural stuff at the start and explain that, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Do you know what we're talking about? Yeah, we're going to talk about reunification and oh, Treuhand. Right. Yeah, that'll be great. That's a, that's a super interesting topic and, and ties in with this a bit. Um, and again, one of these really foundational things of German politics that's kind of discussed in this very triumphalist way of like, oh, you know, Deutsche Einheit, whatever. Uh, Germany came together. The wall came down. It's this very you know, kind of happy ending story that like everybody started holding hands. Yeah. If you send ein Volk. Oh, yeah. And the reality of how this happened was just brutally unequal. And this whole narrative that the, the West was so nice to the East and helped them rebuild is largely not true. The West kind of dismembered the East and, and just ate up the little pieces. But we'll get into all those parts. details next time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to our first episode. Yeah. Thanks for joining. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.